and I don't know if you can hear it there in the background, but I had pups come. Started coming right around the same time that he died. Set up in the dark, bolt upright like what the heck is that? Timber rattlesnake hit him right on the cheek. I thought he was going to die that night. I loved him, but there was still bonding going on at that time, you know. The, the end of that first week that he come home, I took him out on his first backpacking trip. I started training him. I got a collapsible shovel that I start carrying because I run into that one time. What should it tell you if winter is my favorite time of year to go backpacking? And I'm somebody who hates being cold. You guys have seen the videos, right? It was like 10 degrees Fahrenheit. I backpacked down the bottom of Grand Canyon. That's, I was dressed in layers of blue. It, it's so eerily out of place, but it sounds like this huge room full of people having a cocktail party. And I was just kind of enjoying the fire, looking up at the stars. Man, he jumped to attention, and I heard nothing. Lots of people loved him beyond just me. A lot of people got to know him over the years. Hybrid vigor is something really interesting that occurs at eight weeks old. Come up out of Mississippi, a Ladner Blackmouth Cur, and we come up against the creek, and we were not uh, on a trail. Greetings everybody, welcome back to The Practical Woodsman. I'm Rut, your host and the creator of The Practical Woodsman. It's nice to have you back here with me again this week. It's been a few weeks, hasn't it? Well, maybe I need to explain that uh, there have been some things going on in my life. My, um, my dear companion, my beloved dog of 13 years, died a few weeks ago and I've been grieving that it's been very hard for me and uh, you know the thing is is that life doesn't stop does it when a, when something like that hap happens you want it to but it don't and so life has been going on and other things have been happening in my life since then but I want to talk for a minute about my dog Bradbury that I called him Braddy uh, for short, but he was named after Ray Bradbury, my favorite author. And I remember when I picked out his name, he was eight weeks old, come up out of Mississippi, a Ladner Blackmouth Cur mixed with a Louisiana Catahoula Leopard Dog. And I remember when I picked out that name, and I thought, boy, that's a mouthful. That's Maybe that's overambitious. Maybe that is never going to just roll off the tongue and sound right. But you know, he took on that name and it, and it just fit him very, very well. And lots of people loved him beyond just me. A lot of people got to know him over the years and the, everybody was loved him. I know if you were to ask anybody about their dog right now, whatever dog they have right now, that say, oh, he's a good dog, one of the best dogs I've ever had. But when I say that Bradbury was a uh, was more than a dog, <laughs> he was just more than a dog. He he felt he was more like a brother to me. We were together for 13 years. We went on lots of adventures together. We're going to talk today a little bit about dogs, and I don't want to get into, I don't want to get too sentimental about this right now about old bratty boy, because, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty raw about this, and uh, if I if I talk too much about it, then I get uh, 
emotional and I want to kind of keep this light today but I hope you understand that 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 really knocked the wind out of me when old Braddy died that that morning and happened very early in the morning on that Friday and um, fortunately I woke up I got to spend his last moments with him I got to comfort him and stuff like that I'm very grateful for that and I'm I'm very grateful for uh, having him as a companion over the years. All of the adventurers, see, I'm getting emotional already. All of the adventures and the things that I've done out in the woods over the past 13 years would not have been possible without him. I got to uh, share those experiences with him because of him. Uh, like I say, he was a, a Ladner Blackmouth Cur crossed with a Louisiana Catahoula Leopard Dog. And I'm, I'm going to start calling those dogs Bradbury Dogs. And I remember I called up uh, Kurt Ladner, who uh, has taken over for his father once his father passed in breeding these Ladner Blackmouth Curs. And at that time, I was living in Philadelphia, and I was doing a lot of backpacking and exploring in the Pennsylvania mountains, and I, I called up Kurt Ladner, and he answered, and I got to talking to him, and I said, uh, you know, I'm looking for a, a certain type of dog, a dog that will make a very gr a great companion in the mountains, in the wilderness, in the backcountry. If it's just me and him, I said, I've been running across a lot of bear on a pretty frequent basis and you know I'd just like to have the some added security for that and I said uh, what will you think with these Ladner blackmouth curs they do all right against bear he said listen uh, let me get this straight he said you're, you're talking about just coming around a corner or something and there being a bear there and I said that's that's exactly what I'm talking about or at night you know when I'm sleeping and Maybe I forgot to take a Snickers bar out of my pocket or something like that. and I just want that extra extra security. He says, well, I'll tell you what. He said, this uh, little 40-pound females will run a bear right up a tree. And I said, well, fantastic. Send me a 60-pound <laughs> male. Well, as I got to thinking about it, I, I was studying something. I was researching breeding and that sort of thing. I've never been a breeder per se. I mean, growing up, like I said, we've always had dog. I've never been without a dog. But we we, we had a lot of uh, strays, you know, would come in or mama dogs would come in, uh, have pups underneath our house and everything. We'd end up keeping one of them, stuff like that. Uh, never bred dogs. Never bought full bred dogs. But anyway, so I was reading a little bit about breeding. Um, I come across something called uh, hybrid vigor. Hybrid vigor is something really interesting that occurs when you cross like a, a tiger and a lion. You know what you get, right? Or a lion and a tiger, you get a, what do they call it? A liger, right? So it's a, it's a hybrid cross between the lion and the tiger that's where their offspring stops because the offspring of the offspring of a, of a lion and a tiger cannot produce more offspring well, i can't remember what the term is for that but anyway it stops right there but there's something interesting that happens with this hybrid vigor when you cross the lion and the tiger what you get 
is uh, exceptional qualities from both. So you get kind of like this super creature, super healthy, not prone to the genetic issues of either one. Uh, you kind of get like a superior animal. So I was reading about this uh, hybrid vigor, and I thought, well, that might work with dogs too. Yeah, maybe that's why mutts are the best, some of the best dogs around. By the way, if you if you you, you folks up in Canada and stuff like that, Alaska, yens know that uh, whenever you see these Siberian huskies, these full-bred Siberian huskies pulling these sleds in the movies, that ain't usually the case. A lot of those riding those sleds prefer to have a mixed dog rather than a full-bred dog. In fact, I've talked to people who say, no, the full-bred dog's superior in every way. Got more heart, got more strength, got fewer problems. And uh, so, the, you know, that might be attributed to this thing called hybrid vigor. And then you talk to certain breeders, they say, no, there's nothing to that. Well, I said it's worth taking a chance. Now, these Ladner curs uh, typically don't have a lot of genetic problems and they end up living a long, long time, especially for a larger dog. But I said, well, let me do some research here. And I then I, that was when I discovered the uh, Louisiana Catahoula leopard dog. And when I studied these two dogs together, I realized that they're kissing cousins. These two breeds are so closely related, but they're distinct breeds. They're both indigenous to the American South. Uh, they both have webbed feet for swimming. They both have similar temperament. They have almost they have identical body types, things of this nature. So I went on the search for a, a dog that was a cross between the Louisiana Catahoula Leopard Dog and Ladner Blackmouth Cur, and I found him down there in Mississippi had him flown to me in Philadelphia and my, my first memory of meeting old Bradbury was that I kept telling my wife at the time that he now he's going to be kind of skittish when he first gets he's been flying on an airplane he's never done that before he's only eight weeks old been jostled around been handled by a bunch of strange people he's going to be coming meeting us we're going to be a bunch of strange people so he's going to probably be pretty shy we're going to have to kind of coax him out and stuff like that and work with him no when we picked him up from the airport i carried his crate out to a grassy spot out there to to give him a chance to relieve himself and when i opened that door of that crate he burst out of there man like the world he had the world on a string no <laughs> no hesitancy to him just complete confidence in himself and I fell in love with him right there went on to train him and be he become my companion for the woods now here's another thing I wanted to tell you about Kurt Ladner his father which I think it was L.H. Ladner I think was his father who was responsible for breeding the, the dogs for many, many years and kind of bringing them to prominence. I read a quote by his father, uh, which I believe is L.H. Ladner. And Kurt's father at some point is quoted as saying, I never feared for a thing out in the woods as long as I had one of my dogs with me. And I will tell you what, that proved to be true 
with my my dear dear friend Bradbury uh, it's because of him that we had all these adventures because I could go out there I could throw a a mat down on the ground with no shelter or anything and I could sleep like a baby and I knew that I had nothing to worry about as long as my buddy was there he kept things away he alert he could see and he alerted me to things that I could not tell were there uh, I remember one night um, we were in the mountains somewhere just him and I uh, it was winter time and we come up against the creek found a creek and we were not uh, on a trail we were we were just making our own path through the woods and I had set a course and I knew that we would come across in a few days we would come across a trail as long as we maintained that course and we were about halfway up through there middle of the night one night no shelter I had uh, gotten a fire going I had set down a tarp and set down my sleeping bag. We were just sleeping there. and He hopped up in the middle. I, I was just sitting there. I don't remember what I was doing that night. I was awake, but it was it was pretty late. And I was just kind of enjoying the fire, looking up at the stars, had my toboggan on my head and, you know, cuddled up in the sleeping bag. And Man, he jumped to attention, and I heard nothing. I heard nothing. Saw nothing. And that... You know, I can't tell you what a fantastic early warning system a dog is, especially in the wintertime. I don't know how many of you folks who watch the show or listen to the show have been alone in the woods in the wintertime. I mean, truly out in the backcountry where there's not a highway nearby or any roads or other people or anything like that. In the wintertime, in the middle of the night, it gets deathly quiet. Deathly quiet. If, if something steps on a twig a hundred yards away you hear it that that's how well you can hear in the winter time in the woods well i hadn't heard a thing but he snapped to attention and did not waste time he run off into the darkness and i heard noises like you know i think it was <laughs> bigfoot i don't really think it was bigfoot but i used that as a as a fun thing to imagine but there was some thrashing and there was some movement and everything like that and I thought I, I'm trying to look I got the the brightest beam I could get out of my backpack and I shone that down into the woods trying to see what was going on but they were beyond that he had heard this whatever it was way beyond even the throw of my powerful flashlight oh I was starting to worry I was starting to worry I hoping he's alright some time passed and he come trotting back to the fire back, back to our camp uh, just fine and dandy whatever it was he had scared it off it could have been a bear could have been uh, old Sasquatch could have been Yeti who knows what but he, he scared her off and and I, I had to worry about nothing one night he and I come back here to Appalachia now remember this is back when I was still living in the city and we come back here to Appalachia, and I didn't want to stay with my folks. I didn't want to stay out there where I grew up. I didn't want really anybody to know I was in town, and I went to a nearby lake. 
and uh, looked around for signs saying I couldn't camp there. I didn't see no signs. So old Braddy and I parked the bacon, which is what I call my Jeep Wrangler. Parked the bacon. I had some gear with me. I got a tent out and I set up a tent right next to that lake. And sitting there in the middle of the night again, something we heard some noises that set me up bolt upright and him too at the same time. Simultaneously, we both sat up in the dark bolt upright like, what the heck is that? And uh, it was yotes, it was coyotes. And uh, I try to explain to people when you get a pack of yotes coming down through the woods, it's so spooky at first, especially when you're just waking up and you're trying to like process what's going on. The best way I can describe it is that it sounds like, um, it, it's so eerily out of place, but it sounds like this huge cock room, like a huge room or a hall full of people having a cocktail party so imagine like this whole big hall or room of people having a cocktail party and they're all chatting and talking and laughing and there's you know there's all these voices and stuff and you can hear like glasses clinking and stuff like that and people moving about and it's just that's what it sounds like but it's so out of place in the deep dark woods that it's very very eerie uh i remember it just putting the hairs up on the back of my neck but again, I didn't worry as long as I had Braddy there. I knew that if they got too close, that he would let them know. But of course, uh, you know, another thing that'll keep Yotes away pretty effectively is a, a nice strong fire. Let's see, any more Bradbury stories here? I, like I say, uh, at some point I do want to do like a nice tribute to him, but I'm just kind of thinking up some stories off the top of my head. One last one I'll tell you before I get on to other things. Uh, when he was two now, these dogs are hardy they are hardy we again were backpacking in the mountains uh, this was in Pennsylvania in the Black Forest and it probably 20 miles in 20 miles in down in a holler between these two big mountains only way out climb this massive mountain on either side and hike I mean many many miles and hours to get out and we got down into the saddle this holler and I started getting camp ready and everything and he was kind of exploring around camp and uh, stuck his nose up under a rock and a timber rattlesnake struck out at him hit him right on the cheek got him right on the cheek and I thought oh my goodness so I took his collar off because I knew there was going to be a lot of swelling took that collar off and his head swelled up to the size, I'm not kidding you, of like a beach ball. It was weird looking, but his whole head swelled up enormously. It was good that I took that collar off because I just wanted to keep his, his air, uh, you know, his breathing clear. Got the, my shelter up, got him into the shelter, got him comfortable, and I, I thought he was going to die that night. Now, at two, I loved him. I loved him a lot, but there was still bonding going on at that time, you know. I don't know if you know how it is. Bonding happens over many years, this really deep, deep, profound type of bonding that, that we eventually developed. But at that time, you know, I, I was tore up about it. I thought there was a good possibility I was going to have to bury him down there in that holler because uh, 
there was no way I could carry a 65, 70 pound dog out of that that holler. So, you know, I'm spending the whole night thinking like, what am I going to do if, if he dies during the night? And it seemed very probable. He survived it. The next morning, he was back to his jolly self. Now, his, his head was still swelled, swelled up like a, like a beach ball. And he was running around looking goofy like Elephant Man or something. But it, that was the only residual thing, was this big swollen head. Otherwise, he had all the energy in the world. He was in good spirits. He's running around, sniffing. He's happy. And so we were able to hike out of there together. And That's how hardy these, these dogs are. And so we, we had lots of great adventures. Um, I'm looking forward to telling you about more of those adventures. Now, he died on a Friday. Uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before. One week passed, and I don't know if you can hear it there in the background, but I had pups come. Pups come on the same day. Started coming right around the same time that he died. So isn't that ironic? Um, these new pups guess what they are they're a cross between a Ladner Blackmouth Cur and a Louisiana Catahoula Leopard the Bradbury Dogs and I did this in preparation for the possibility that well for the uh, the inescapable reality that Braddy wasn't always going to be with me because I lived in Philadelphia when I got him, there's a a profound social pressure to get your dogs neutered. You're judged as a responsible or an irresponsible pet owner based on whether you get your dogs fixed. And uh, just a couple years after I got him fixed, I regretted it. I regretted it deeply because he was the best dog I'd ever had in my life. I would have loved to have had been able to continue his bloodline and I hated that I had caved to that social pressure to have him neutered now it, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into a big argument about this uh, right now we can talk about it another time but <laughs> this cult like business of neutering dogs as soon as they're of age uh, in the cities is so ridiculous because they claim that it's to prevent unwanted pregnancies. But I've lived in the cities, and I don't see any dogs walking off leash, do you? <laughs> if you're the owner of a dog, when are you going to be walking that dog off leash? In Philadelphia. The answer is you're not. You're not, ever. Uh, I, I took Braddy to uh, a park one time. There was no other person in that park. I had a, an electronic collar on him, so I could, you know, I could give him a little zap with a, a controller. So it was like an invisible leash, and I was passing ball with him, just playing with him in the park. And uh, the cops showed up and told me I had to put a leash on him. Um, so I didn't even get to play with him for five minutes before the cops showed up. Somebody complained. Cops showed up. They wanted a physical leash on him, even though there was nobody around. He's he is fixed. And we were playing ball. And I had perfect control over him with that zapper. It wasn't good enough. So I know the nature of pet ownership in the cities. 
the, the unwanted puppies and pregnancies are not coming from pets that are owned. So the idea that you as a pet owner are obligated to get your pet neutered to prevent stray puppies is absurd on its face. It's the most illogical line of reasoning I think I can imagine. Uh, and then there are other arguments. It prolongs their life, helps with behavior and stuff like that. You know, you know what helps with behavior? First of all, the inherent personality type your dog's born with, one. Number two, your abilities as the dog owner, as a teacher. Your abilities as a dog as a dog teacher, as a as a pack leader, as a master. Those two things are what make a difference, not whether the dog is neutered. There is no science whatsoever to support the idea, for example, that if you neuter your dog, it will protect him from certain types of cancer. That That's a myth. So there's all these myths and lies surrounding the whole thing that driving people to get their dogs neutered and fixed. But I regret it because now my buddy's gone. And I, there, I have n- nothing of him, uh, no, none of his children or anything to carry along his name or his bloodline. So, with that regret, I started hatching a plan, and my plan was that, uh, as he got older, I would get myself a full-blooded Louisiana Catahoula Leopard dog, and then I would get myself a full-blooded. Uh, Latin or Black Mile Cur and I would breed him myself and then I would choose Braddy's successor from that litter they're right here right now you might be able to hear them nursing and crying there in the background so that's the irony of it this plan has been in the works for years and uh, you know it just kind of the timing of it or just kind of very uh, I don't know I don't know if it's poetic or if it's uh, ironic or what it is my preference was was that the puppies were going to be born and then they were going to get to spend time around Braddy and learn from him and that he would be an influence on them and in that way it would be like his successor was one of his pups because it would be one of his students you know that that had learned directly from him and I missed it by a week <laughs> a little bit more in a week yeah, but um, I'm happy that they're here I'm excited about that and at the same time I'm still grieving my buddy so that's where we're at um, you should be seeing some video here of the new pups and you should have been seeing some video of old Braddy as I talk I realize some of you are just listening here on the internet or uh, listening to the audio version only of this but uh, if you're a dog lover maybe this would be one that you'd like to check out the video to and uh, you can subscribe to the practical woodsman on both rumble and youtube i hope you will uh, getting close to the thousand subscriber mark on the practical woodsman of course i'm, I'm excited about that uh, as excited as i can be right now that'll once i cross that threshold that'll offer some perks that i'm looking forward to so please uh like these videos recommend them to your friends uh, you know when you like a video then uh 
it 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 spreads it recommends that the algorithm recommends that video then to more people who are interested in similar topics that you're interested in so please do that for me and help me grow my YouTube audience I appreciate it today's primary topic which is related to dogs is seven secrets for staying warm in the woods in the cold cold woods every once in a while friends of mine or uh, you know acquaintances that I come across uh, they'll have an opportunity to go out with me as a sort of like their guide and go on an adventure with me into the backcountry and when I tell them that my favorite time to go is in the winter time you know what every one of them says without fail every one of them without fail says I hate being cold well guess what I also hate being cold yes it's true I hate being cold I hate the discomfort of being cold so what should it tell you what should it tell you if winter is my favorite time of year to go backpacking and at the same time I'm somebody who hates being cold you guys have seen the videos right of me out there this past what was it February uh, oh November yeah it was like 10 degrees Fahrenheit that was like the high so what should I tell you if uh, I hate being cold and at the same time winter is my favorite time to go into the woods on these long adventures and excursions well it should tell you that I must be doing something that keeps me pretty darn comfortable even in temperatures that are far below freezing otherwise as somebody who hates being cold I wouldn't be out there would I so there are seven different parts to keeping warm while living outdoors in the winter and as we talk along I might come up with number eight and number nine we just have to see <clears throat> the first part to keeping warm in the cold cold woods of course is being properly dressed now this is not just you know, what what type of clothes you're wearing it, it it's much more profound than that I mean it's much more there's much more to it than that it involves wearing the right types of fabrics and wearing them in the appropriate way you've probably heard guys like me girls like me who into the woods and stuff like that talking about wool wool is a magic fabric with benefits that outweigh any other in my opinion now far north bushcraft guy Lonnie from far north bushcraft a guy that I have tremendous admiration for really love his channel really love him uh, and his knowledge you know I've learned a lot from him I saw a video with him and talking about wool now he's up there in Alaska so you know if you're talking about brutal weather there's a guy that would know and he's particularly fond of synthetics like polyester and the reason for that is and this is something I learned from Lonnie I didn't know this he says that wool will 
absorb something like 20% uh, uh, humidity or 20% hang on a second there's a cat outside my dog cat alright this is actually two wild cats and I don't mean wild cats I mean feral cats uh, feral cats running around all over the place down around here and in fact one of the cats that I have as a pet uh my God, he's in my alley cat. I just went to the pizza, pizza shop one night. I saw him outside. It was a rainy, cold winter night. <laughs> I was going in to pick up a pizza, and I thought, that's a that's a nice-looking cat there, orange cat. He was standing there kind of huddled underneath the door trying to stay out of the rain. I said, I'm going to bend over. I said this to myself. I'm going to bend over and pet this cat. And uh, surely as I do he's going to spook and he's going to run off would you believe that i bent over to pet him and he pushed right up into it he like he was just waiting for it he loved it oh man i was sold so from that day on i throwed him into the jeep and took him home and he's been one of my favorite cats i've ever owned to this day but around this area there's just feral cats everywhere uh, the whole town is overrun with uh, homeless feral cats anyway so back to Lonnie uh, Lonnie says that wool will absorb like 20% uh, water whereas synthetics will only absorb up to something like 2% so it's true that wool uh, keeps you warm goes a long way keeping you warm uh, even when it's soaking wet but what I did not know is that it will absorb up to like 20% moisture. So that's kind of his, he prefers the synthetics like polyester because they'll dry much, much quicker. They only absorb like 2% moisture. Whereas your wool sweater will absorb up to even 20%. So I, I understand that argument. However, I think that the other benefits of wool make it far superior to things like polyester so wool is my preference every day every night all week long it's uh, the benefits just outweigh anything negative you know of course everybody always talks about how it's naturally antimicrobial antibacterial antimicrobial it's uh, naturally wicking 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 Jenny um and then there's the, you know, you hear the thing where everybody says, well, it's, uh, it, it's flame-proof or it's, you know, it's fireproof. Well, that, that ain't true. Uh, it's the correct wording for that is that it's naturally anti, it's not anti-flammable, uh, meaning that it, it's not that it won't burn. It's just that it, it, burn, it does not burn easy. So what would be the correct terminology for that? Uh, flame retardant. It's flame retardant would be the correct wording for that. So, you know, if I'm sleeping right next to a fire, I got a wool blanket and a coal pops out and lands on my blanket, uh, it ain't the end of the world. It can sit there for a while. I'll realize it's there and I can brush it off and uh, no harm done. But I'll tell you the reason why I know that it's not anti-flammable. 
or uh, that you know that it's immune to burning my brother my buddy Jeff and I were on this backpacking trip in the mountains this is uh, 10 years ago and we got next to a fire that night our socks were wet now we were I was wearing um, 90% wool socks <laughs> I don't recommend it it oh man that was not comfortable on my feet it was itching my feet the whole daggone trip but I wanted to get as close to 100% wool socks as I could and uh, so I got these socks and they were like rag wool very uncomfortable on my sensitive feet but they, my, you know my boots were damp from my, my feet sweating the whole day so that night next to the fire I, I set a I set a branch near the the big campfire we had a nice big almost a bonfire going I set up a branch there and I hung my socks there to dry these 90% wool socks and they were so close to the fire they actually burnt through they, they crisped they cri- the bottoms of them crisped and uh, and when I went to put them on the, the bottoms just come right out of them where the, the fire had just weakened and burnt, burnt the wool so wool will burn um, now uh, I will say that at no time did I see them flame up or anything like that uh, but they burnt they burnt through and that was high wool content very high wool content so you know you don't want to get too close to the fire with your wool you don't want to tempt fate or anything like that it will burn burn now whether it flames up or that i have not seen from personal experience but uh, it's kind of beside the point if if it burns anyway right it slow burns by contrast these man-made fabrics like uh you know the synthetics polyester nylon you know what they do they melt they melt so like i said i love lonnie i really love his channel the the guy knows more than i know Uh, i would i would bet (laughs) i'd bet you a nickel on it definitely knows more than i know but i can't imagine like him scooching up next to the fire with like his polyester throw blanket and polyester garments and a, a coal popping out of the fire and landed on him not a, he's going to get burnt <laughs> i mean because it melts it melts like hot wax it, it would be like having i'll tell you what it would be like it'd be like having um, hot tar thrown on you so that's just not appealing to me i think i can handle the fact that my wool absorbs 20 percent uh, moisture for the trade-off that if a coal pops out of the fire on me it's not going to melt and you know what 20 percent moisture is not really that much it, it will still keep you warm it'll still dry out real real quick so the benefits outweigh the the cons i've mentioned wool is naturally fire resistant it's quick drying uh keeps you warm when it's wet and you know you've heard a lot of these things because they get repeated over and over and over and over again by folks doing this sort of thing i heard somebody else talking about the wool about how it works and i've been paying attention to this ever since i heard him talking about it and i'm sorry i can't give credit to where credit's due i I don't remember who who i heard it from Uh, 
but the person was talking about kind of the differences between like goose down and wool the way the way it it heats you if you look at wool under a microscope what you see are these hollow fibers and I've I have extensive use with wool I have extensive use with goose down and the way this person described it I think was just kind of perfection he says when you when you get like underneath goose down you kind of feel the heat everywhere you know like it traps in just heat kind of evenly distributed when you get under a wool blanket you'll feel a part of the wool blanket heating up and then that heat kind of distributes through the weave of the blanket until it covers from top to bottom it's like the heat is in the blanket whereas with like goose down you don't feel the heat in the bag in the goose down bag you feel the heat trapped under the bag but in a wool blanket it's it's really kind of magical if you can get under there and let your body heat start to warm that blanket up it distributes it through all the all the fibers of the blanket so the heat feels like it's actually in the blanket almost like an electric blanket it's it's really fantastic um, so maybe pay attention to that the next time you get up underneath a, a wool blanket just kind of be consciously aware of of what the heat is doing and, and I think you will agree with me on that now here's the proper way to wear wool not by getting the thickest wool thing you can find so you might be saying wow wool sounds like magic it's wonderful what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna get the thickest wool jacket I can find and then I'll just wear that over a shirt and and I'm good to go well we all start off thinking that until somebody corrects us so don't feel like I'm browbeating you or anything that's not the right way to dress the right way to dress is to dress in layers so what I'll usually do is I'll wear like a, a wool long john and then over that just a thin like smart wool sweater or like a you know like a polo shirt long sleeve polo shirt over top of that and then over top of that I might put a, a thicker kind of like lambs wool sweater you want to layer like that because the way that the heating the way it keeps you warm is that it traps your, your body's heat in between layers now the beautiful thing about layering up like that and I tell you dressed like that 90% of the time I can go without a jacket but if you want to know how the jacket would go on I, I, on top of that would go a, a soft shell and then on, over top of the soft shell would go a hard shell the hard shell is meant to block wind it does so the wind can't pass through and carry the heat out but uh, that's how you do it and the wonderful thing about it is you know uh, another thing that gets repeated a lot is you, you don't want to sweat in the winter time and that's so much harder said than done because you get into a groove climbing up a mountain or everything or something like that and you really you really don't want to stop your mind is on getting to the top or you're working around camp you're cutting firewood your mind is on getting the wood cut and getting to the fire so it's a 
people say it all the time don't sweat don't sweat don't sweat but then you get out there in real world conditions in real life conditions and, and you just want to get you just want to get to where you're trying to go or you just want to get the job done so even even when you realize you're starting to sweat you kind of like poo poo it off like it's not that big of a deal but i will tell you it is a big deal uh, as soon as you stop all that activity in the winter time the cold air can plummet your body temperature just like that i mean especially you got some wind going so it really is always in your best interest to just slow down say you know what if i have to add another day to this trip that's what i'm going to have to do but i'm not going to sweat but the other thing is that as long as you're dressed in layers you just peel a layer off and yes that sounds easy what i'm telling you when you get out there the same thing happens that i just described it's a bother you go i don't want to do that i don't because what happens is you take the layer off and then 10 minutes later you stop for a break you got to put it back on it really does turn into a bother do it anyway do it anyway and i try to follow that advice so that's the beauty about dressing in layers i will tell you i, I backpacked down the bottom of grand canyon i think i talked about that in the very first episode of this show and um that's i was dressed in layers of wool but you know you're thinking about these thick like scottish wool sweaters you don't need that i'm telling you what three or four of these very thin uh smart wool or very thin woven wool shirts and wool sweaters which you think would not keep you warm not by themselves maybe not but you layer up two or three of them and they will keep you very warm and at the same time there's no bulk that's the wonderful thing you can hike with the backpack you don't even have to put a jacket on so try it thin layers of wool layered up are superior to the thickest you know wool jacket that you can go out and buy so this dressing in multiple layers this ain't something that just applies to wool it applies to any fabric and I kind of described the way I do it. Above the waist might be like a wool t-shirt. By the way, you, you can find underwear now in wool. And I'll tell you what, it's wonderful because if you don't get to bathe for three or four days and you're wearing wool underwear, I'm talking about boxer briefs. Wool boxer briefs. You go, ooh, that's going to be itchy on my, on my bits. No, it ain't. Not if you find smart wool or really soft lambs wool or things of that nature they are able to spin it these days as soft as cotton and that's what i do i wear wool uh, boxer briefs and uh, if i don't get to bathe three four five days guess what because the wool is antimicrobial and antibacterial you don't get the, the skankiness down there that you would get with cotton or anything like that especially polyester polyester is the worst for underwear so i'd be curious to see what lonnie has to say about that because uh it just accumulates skank is what it does whereas the wool doesn't do that of course some people say that most of the heat escapes out of your head other people say don't but uh whatever the case it's nice to invest in a nice wool toboggan uh, when i say toboggan what i'm talking about is like a knit cap you know, a toboggan knit cap, something covers your ears. In other places, I think people call them beanies, they call them knit hats. Uh, uh, we call them toboggans. 
All right, number two part of, uh, oh, before we move on, there's a saying that I live by. I, I don't remember if I've shared this before or not, but it goes like this. There's no such thing as bad weather. There's only such thing of being inappropriately dressed. And that's not just what you're wearing, it's how you're wearing it. Such as, are you layered up or are you just wearing one big thick thing, right? Number two, the second part of staying warm in the cold, cold woods is uh, exertion. This includes anything from hiking while carrying gear to collecting and preparing firewood. Like I just described, you know, you get around camp and you're just working. That'll keep you warm. You don't want to keep yourself so warm that you sweat, though. If you start to sweat, peel, peel some layers off that's the only reason you should keep working if you begin sweating is if you're peeling layers off otherwise stop working for a while until you cool down climbing a big old mountain start to sweat well you got two options strip some layers off and keep hiking or stop hiking until your body cools down so exertion is the second secret to keeping warm in the cold cold woods might look like hiking, might look like carrying gear, might look like collecting and preparing firewood, uh, might look like doing work around camp to get camp set up, might look like building the fire, cleaning uh, a section of snow off the ground, you know, depending on how thick the snow is. That could really get your heart rate up and get you warm. Anything that involves enough exertion to get your heart pumping and keep you warm, you know, that's that's what we're talking about. One of my chores every night in the wintertime growing up was uh, to have enough firewood on the back stoop of our house to get us through the night and the next day because we heated with a wood stove. And many times what that involved was me chopping firewood. And I remember being out in in sub-freezing temperatures and uh, shirtless chopping that firewood, sweating. Exertion is a great way to get warm Uh, and it's the least fun too because if you're freezing in the middle of the night the last thing you really want to do is get out and do push-ups but if that's what you got to do i always think about that i always think now i'm probably going to be all right tonight but if i get into a dangerous situation can't get a fire going stuff like that i can always do push-ups or jumping jacks i always think that so i stay calm I don't really get too scared out there. Uh, I know what my options are. It may not be my preferred option. I don't really want to be doing jumping jacks in the middle of the mountains at 3 o'clock in the morning. But if I have to, I can. Part 3, staying warm in the cold, cold woods, which is also one of the easiest and most effective ways to warm yourself up while being outside in the cold, is to eat something. Did you know that? That's it. Eat something or drink something. Uh, So that would be something I would add to this, would be to drink something. We would make that the next part. But right now, let's talk about eating something. The process of eating something, the process of your body taking that food in and then digesting that, heats your body up immediately. So I always try to have a little something to eat in the middle of the wintertime right before I go to bed because as I'm sleeping I want my body to be digesting that food and keeping my body warm 
which will generate heat, which will keep me warmer underneath my blanket or underneath my sleeping bag or underneath my blanket. Uh, I'll tell you something about my sleeping bags. Well, we'll get to it in a second. Remind me to tell you. I never sleep in the sleeping bag like they're designed. I, I use my sleeping bags like a, a blanket. And I'll, t- I'll tell you why. It, it, it has to do with Bradbury, my dog. So just remember that. Digesting food heats you up. So before you go to bed, just have something to eat. Now, it's past uh, November that I was out there, and it's freezing, freezing, freezing out there in the mountains. Um, one new trick I learned was to keep a kettle over the fire, keep hot water over the fire just all night long. Rather than preparing like a tea, hot tea or something like that as I want the hot tea. So it used to be that I would just carry my mug and just whenever I wanted a hot drink, then I would just start from scratch, get my mug in there, get that water boiling and stuff like that. And uh, one thing I learned this past winter time is uh, there's a better way of doing that, and that's just to hang a, have a kettle keep it full water keep it hung over the fire all night long the beauty about that is you don't have to start from scratch you've always got hot water it's so it's so convenient then as you start to get cold you just pour yourself some hot tea and you drink that hot liquid and you don't even have to make tea you can just drink the hot water and it does the same thing and it warms you up from the inside out it really goes a long way of doing that now what i will say about that it won't keep you it won't keep you warm as long as eating something because remember what keeps you warm about eating something is your body's process of digesting it and that's something that goes on for hours whereas you just drinking hot tea that passes through your system pretty quick number four part number four of staying warm in the cold cold woods stay dry at all costs this means limit your sweating at all costs we've kind of talked about that so since you're dressed in layers it should be simple you just if you start to sweat, you stop and peel off a layer or two. When you start getting cold again, put layers on. And like I said, you hear people say that and you go, oh, well, that's simple. But in real life, when you get out there, it's such a hassle that most people won't do it. Most people won't do it. They'll do it once or twice and they'll go, man, this is such a bother. I'm not going to get anything done if I keep stopping and putting layers on and taking them off and stuff like that. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. You know, if it rains, you want to make sure that you cover yourself with a poncho or a rain jacket or something like that. Don't fall into cricks. But then again, if you're dressed in wool from head to toe, dangers falling into a crick aren't as bad as uh, as they would be if uh, you're dressed in something else. Part five: coverage slash bedding. You have to stay dry. You have to insulate yourself from the ground, and you need something to cover up with at night. Nature puts scientists to shame by giving us goose down. It's the lightest, most compact insulator with the greatest heat retention powers. Under an 800 fill, zero degree or below zero degree goose down sleeping bag, you will sleep like a baby and... uh, you will never know it's cold outside at all. You won't even feel a chill. A lot of people moan about the trouble you'll be in if your sleeping bag gets wet and the down loses its loft. Loft, And, you know, that's a legitimate concern. So don't get wet. Remember, that's one of the things you don't want to do. 
So make sure you're not going to get wet and you'll be fine. Nobody who's interested in staying dry himself or herself is going into the woods when it's zero degrees outside with no plan to get out of the rain or snow. I mean, nobody with a brain. And so if the person sleeping inside the goose down bag has no intention of getting wet, I guarantee that in my sleeping bag, the thing I'm sleeping in is also not at risk of getting wet. So just pack a a shelter. Make sure you pack an effective shelter and you'll be fine. And of course a sleeping pad and of course a, a tarp to put down so that there's snow on the ground. By, by the way, if there's snow on the ground, you want to remove that snow. Get a stick, get something, pack a shovel if you think you're going into snowy conditions. Anything to get that snow out of there. You don't want to lay on top of the snow. Even if you've got like a, a four-season sleeping pad, stuff like that. What will happen is that the heat from your body will begin to melt that snow, but it will refreeze into solid ice. And once that happens, you know, the... the it's a constant battle once that happens of your body heat combating that cold and you you know it's just it it's worth going through the trouble to just get that snow out of there try to get down to the bare ground and uh and lay on bare ground i got a collapsible shovel that i start carrying uh, because i run into that one time and it was I was lazy and I thought well I'm just going to lay everything down on top of the snow and just do it that way Uh, it wasn't uh, it just complicated things it complicated things when that snow started to melt and refroze into ice solid rock ice and um, I just thought gosh if I hadn't have been lazy the work would have been so much easier while the snow was fluffy and, and easy to move to, to move as much of that away as I could and get closer to the ground. Part six, be able to start and maintain a fire. This means carrying multiple fail-proof, me- fail-proof methods of starting fire. In the past, I've told you I never carried just one way of starting fire. I carry many different ways of starting fire. I carry lots of tinder. I carry lots of ways of creating spark, lots of ways of creating a fire, and I uh, carry uh, fatwood. Uh, so even if it's been raining heavy, or even if everything's been soaked in snow, I can uh, reliably get fires going. You want to be able to do that too. You also want to have a means for collecting and processing wood. You know, I carry a portable, foldable saw, and sometimes I'll even carry an axe or a hatchet if I have to. Uh, when conditions are extreme and finally part number seven part number seven one of the most important ways of staying warm in the cold cold woods get a portable heat generating device to accompany you on your trip that can also help carry supplies and provide company and by this what I mean is get a dog get a dog I told you about uh, get a dog or a girlfriend <laughs> but I'll tell you what not to uh, be be not to come across sexist or anything but uh, <laughs> this is going to get me in trouble a dog often 
will be a greater work companion in the in the backcountry than than a woman will be. Now, ladies, I know that there are exceptions to that, and forgive me for for saying that. In my experience, most of the women that I've gone out on these things with um, rely on me a lot to to get things done for them. And uh, my dog uh, is more of a, a a participant in the in the thing knows what he's doing carries his own weight gets the own, it does his own jobs knows what he's going to do carries lots of stuff that i need him to carry extra water things like that um so i know that that's not true for for all girls um and i know it's not fair for me to say that uh for those of you who you know know as much about the woods as i do and maybe even more because I know you exist. I'm speaking in generality, so I hope you'll forgive me. A girlfriend underneath your sleeping bag with you will generate heat. You you both will generate heat. You both will keep each other warm. But uh, a dog will do that too. And, uh, you know, you just probably don't want to be kissing your dog and making out with your dog. But Braddy and I, we had a system. And one thing I wanted to tell you about him was that I started training him. You know, I got him from the airport when he was eight weeks old. The, the end of that first week that he come home, I took him out on his first backpacking trip. I started training him uh, that night or that weekend and um, poured the rain that, that weekend, and he hated it. He was – I remember him yiping and trying to hide underneath the – the the branches of these fir trees uh to try to get out of the rain but he would watch me and he saw that i was just taking the rain i was just tolerating the rain um and and then he started learning from me Uh, I, i remember him learning studying me very intently on that very first backpacking trip and learning and then every subsequent backpacking trip we'd go on he he was more an expert than he was the previous time and uh but from the very beginning when he was very small what i would do is i'd unzip my sleeping bag so i'd have like a mummy down sleeping bag and i'd unzip it to the bottom and i would just drape it on me now the reason why i was going to tell you that i don't sleep in the sleeping bag i don't like being restrained in the middle of the night if i have to get up i like to be able to just throw things off of me and get up Man, I see these guys on these channels going into the woods, and they getting out. They're getting undressed in the middle of the night, and they're putting on their pajamas. They're carrying pajamas, like literally carrying pajamas. Getting dressed in pajamas, their little teddy bear and their bottle of milk, and ah, it annoys me to to heck because <laughs> it, you know it's fine if that's the way you want to do it. That's fine. I'm not doing it. I'm sleeping in my clothes. If I think I'm in an area where I might I might actually have to get up in the middle of the night, like jump to my feet and get up and go, uh, I don't even take my boots off. Now, usually I do take my boots off, but that's about all I take off. I'm ready to get up and scooch if I have to get up and scooch. I want to be prepared, uh, wake up and be ready to go. So that's the way I do it. But the reason why I'd sleep under, I sleep under my sleeping bag like that is because they don't insulate you from the bottom. 
Did you know that? I know a lot of you do know that, but a lot of you don't know that too. A sleeping bag doesn't insulate you from the bottom. So if you take a mummy sleeping bag and you unzip it down to the bottom and you cover yourself with, over with it, do you know what happens? It doesn't lay flat. It, it, it encases you because of the natural design of the mummy bag. It kind of folds over you kind of like a burrito or something. I don't know how else to explain it. But its natural design kind of folds around you. And you don't feel the cold. You don't feel the cold. I sleep right on my sleep pad with my sleeping bag just draped on me, on top of me, not under me or anything, and I don't feel cold all night long. But the beauty of that is that you've got freedom of movement all night long. Now, when I move around and I change positions and stuff like that, I might feel a draft come in underneath for a second, but it's it. that's it. And, I mean, I've, I've been out there in cold, cold temperatures, eight below, eight below de- uh, degrees Fahrenheit. What's negative 8 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? Minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit is minus 22.22 degrees Celsius. Minus 22 degrees Celsius. Minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, done that several times. And uh, I don't sleep in my sleeping bag. I sleep with my sleeping bag over me. So you've got freedom of movement and all that. You stay as warm as you would if you were zipped up into the thing and don't have freedom of movement. And if uh, you know something comes into your camp in the middle of the night or if there's an emergency or something like that, pack of yotes come in, um, you're fighting to get out of the sleeping bag. I don't like being restrained like that. Uh, no way. No way. I, I won't do that. But the other benefit is that you can get a dog in there with you. And the way we would do it, and I started this when, like I said, Braddy was just a pup. I could hold him in one hand. Uh, he would go down and he'd curl between my feet down at the end of the bag. Now, he growed up to be like a, a 70 pound dog, pretty, pretty good sized dog. And he, we were still doing that. And uh, we just adapted as he grew. And one of the adaptations was I would drape one of my legs over top of him. So he'd climb down there, he'd get positioned, and then I would pull the sleeping bag on top of us and I would just drape my leg over him and I'm telling you what we slept like babies in minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit minus 22 Celsius degrees with only the sleeping bag and the two of us in the sleeping bag Uh, he was a heat generating machine and we slept so comfortable under there so that really you know there's so many benefits to having a dog Uh, but today this topic is about staying warm uh, when it's cold that's that's a big one yeah and it comes with so many other benefits uh, which we will talk about on another occasion folks i appreciate you joining me for this episode of uh the practical woodsman i appreciate your patience with me while i grieved my loss there for a while and yeah, I'm still grieving it, but uh, it's getting a little bit easier. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the next dog, which will be my companion for these adventures. And I, I'm studying these this litter really intently. I, I want to find the dog that has uh, the natural personality characteristics uh, that 
uh, I've learned make for just a perfect companion out in the back country and you know hopefully this will be somebody that I'll end up having adventures with uh, up into my 60s so uh, ladies and gentlemen it's uh look forward to having you join me along with this adventure while I select the dog and get to know him and everything and I'll sure be sure to show him off now these pups are only a week old uh, as the the weeks go by uh, I'll be continuing to study them uh, and uh, get get a better idea of the one that is going to be my companion and uh, one you know so it's exciting it's exciting and that's all I've got to say about that so uh, you guys take care I'll I'll see you in the next episode